Thank you, Alan. Uh, thank you so much for that reading. Um, I love the book of Philippians. I think it's, uh, if not my absolute favourite, certainly in my top three. There's so much I would like to be saying about it today. But I'll try and be focused and keep us to the point. Um, and this is the second in our series on developing spiritual disciplines and how they help us grow. So what's this passage all about? What's the discipline it's pointing us towards? On the face of it, it's all about giving, isn't it? It's about the gift that the Philippian church sent to Paul, who was probably at this stage a prisoner in Rome. And Paul is thanking the Philippians for a gift of money. I have to say, as I read it, he sounds a little bit grumpy at the start. I don't know if that, anyone else picked that, but he says, at last you renewed your concern for me. You know, Was he a little bit grumpy? I think we could probably forgive him if he's in chains uh, in a prison, but maybe he was. But then there's a recognition that, in fact, they were concerned for him and had been concerned, um, but they'd like the opportunity or maybe the resources to give to him. And he warms to his theme then and becomes very thankful, thanking them for their generosity over the years. Even when I was in Thessalonica, he writes, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And he definitely ends on a very upbeat note, doesn't he? I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied. And now that I have received from Epaphroditus, gosh, that was a word to throw in there, wasn't it? Epaphroditus, the gifts that you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul being very upbeat there. So on the face of it, this is a a passage all about giving. And I don't know about you, but I find preaching sermons on giving very personally discomforting. You see, I've been really greatly blessed in material terms. In fact, in many, many ways, but particularly in material terms. And I think there are few experiences that are more guilt-inducing than a sermon on giving. And yet, that's not how it should be, is it? In Christ, there is no condemnation. We are forgiven people. We are not called to feel guilty. And therefore, as I immersed myself in this passage and sought the Lord, I think God was saying something slightly different to me. He was saying, don't talk just about giving. I don't think that's what it's about. It's about contentedness. Verse 11 there. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. So I'd like us to focus our attention today on contentedness, on being content. And this may be something that's almost as difficult as focusing on giving. Are you contented? You're not, Maria. No. Well, you're brave enough to say it. I suspect there's an awful lot of people who would say that. Would you say you are content? Do you have that gnawing anxiety that others are getting a better deal, that they're achieving more, having more fun than you? It's so easy, isn't it, to find ourselves gripped by envy and a fear that others 
at getting stuff that we're not. I was just reflecting, you know, you hear that a friend has just got a job promotion. And your job seems to be utterly tedious and going nowhere. Or another person in your circle puts up oh, some pictures on Facebook of their lovely new flat. And it just makes you realise the wallpaper in your own is peeling. And you still haven't fixed that bit of skirting board and so on and so forth. Or there's another friend, isn't there, who's blogging regularly with news of their backpacking adventures through New Zealand. And you're reading that while you're sandwiched on the commuter train in the morning. You find yourself envious and irritated at the same time. I'm, this time of year, I always end up with a bit of a feeling of discontentedness because, um, as you might have spotted, I'm not too good on my pins, and yet everybody else seems to be having a wonderful time on ski slopes. Uh, and, so on. and that's something I've never been able to do. I've managed to do a bit of the après ski. That's not too bad, but the actual skiing is not so good. <laughs> Discontent seems to be an inherent part of our human nature. It seems we can't help ourselves. I don't know if there are any Downton Abbey-type fans here, but I came across a lovely little story that, uh, that amused me. Um, it's kind of set in a sort of Downton Abbey type of theme. Uh, one day, Lord Congleton, who was a very godly man, overheard his Christian servants remarking in the kitchen, oh, if only I had five pounds, I'd be perfectly content. So pondering that statement, he decided he'd like to see someone who was perfectly content. So he went to the woman who said it, and he said he wanted to see her content, and gave her five pounds. He left the room, and as he left the room, he heard her say, if only I'd known he was going to do that, I'd have asked for ten. <laughs> it's uh, The ability... I think we kind of get this passage so wrong, don't we? The ability to be discontent in all circumstances seems to be something that we didn't have to learn. It's born in us and throughout our lives takes hold of us. Why is that? Well, of course, the world is against us. The world is constantly telling us that we need to be improved. We need to be more, to do more, to have more. We shouldn't be satisfied with how we are. But perhaps it's more than just the world's pressures on us. We can't control those. Perhaps it's more about the mindset that we have to react to them. How we choose to think. How we choose to react to the circumstances we're in and what we see around us. And actually, if you think about it, if you go back right to the beginning, that's how it was, wasn't it? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden they had everything. Everything that was wonderful and good and easy. Their surroundings were literally heaven-like. The earth produced their food. They dwelled with the animals in peace. They were naked and not ashamed. And above all of this, they had perfect communion with God. The perfect life. Until they heeded that contrary voice that questioned God's words. And the serpent dangled before Eve the idea that maybe God was depriving her of something good. That infection of discontent took root. And the gangrene grew. And we've all inherited that 
same mindset, that sin of discontentedness, we are, find it so easy to be unhappy with what God in his sovereignty has graciously given to us for our good. Is God depriving us of something good? Is there something more out there for us? A better house, a husband, children, a better marriage, more money, a better job, whatever. When we think this way, what we're saying to God is that you've not given us enough. We know what we really need. You don't. What a sin. What a way to treat God, to treat our heavenly loving Father who has given us so much. Yes, my friends, I believe discontent is one of the spiritual sins that is besetting us. It's encouraged by pressure from the world and it's deeply embedded in our fallen human hearts. So let's turn it round. What is this contentment that we should have? If you look it up in a a dictionary, you'll see it described, contentment being described as a state of peaceful happiness. In a sense, contentment is the absence of worry. Whether that worry is about who we are or what we have or don't have or what our condition is in life. Have you met people who are contented, who have that sense of real contentment about them? They're people who seem to have been able to react to their circumstances in different ways to other people, in different ways to people like me. Their reactions are not anger, but peace. Not frustration, but satisfaction. Not anxiety, but trust. Trust. I want us to dwell on that word just for a minute or two. Think of some images of trust. I think of a dog lying at my feet. I think of a young hurl in his mother's arms, a baby in their mother's arms. They're images of trust, but they're also images of contentment. There's a stillness about them, isn't there? The dog or the child, they're living in the present moment. They're not trying to undo a past that they can't change. And they're not worrying about trying to shape a future they can't control. Let me read you some words from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus is talking to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read it all, because it is all worth hearing. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry, 
saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not worry about tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the picture of contentment. So how do we go about it? How do we become contented? And as we've just heard in our our reading, Paul says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. The implication of the word learned is that it wasn't always like this for Paul. He grew in contentment over time. It didn't come quickly, and it didn't come easily. But there was growth, and there was progress for him. And the same can be true for us today. And what is the secret that Paul learned about contentment? How did he learn it? And how is it possible for us to learn it today? Well, I think if we read the whole of chapter 4... Paul's helpfully given us some clues. Let me just highlight five things that Paul draws our attention to through this chapter. Let me pick up in verse 4, when Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. It's about being thankful. I've heard it said that when you're worrying, when you just can't sleep at night, don't count sheep, count your blessings great piece of advice. Well, let's move on to verse 6. Paul writes this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Instead of being anxious, we should submit ourselves to God in prayer. And when we do that, Paul writes, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's carry on through Philippians 4. Let's go to verse 8, where Paul explains another really helpful spiritual practice. He writes, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Contentment comes from focusing on the good things. And Paul's referring here to a discipline of the mind where we refuse to allow those things which are hateful and despicable and stressful and immoral to take control of our minds. What might that mean in practice for us as we gossip amongst each other, as we indulge in social media? Let's move on to the next verse, to verse 9. Paul says... Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. If we're going to learn to be contented, we need to be prepared to be taught. Learn from the heroes of our faith. And do you know what? You'll find the heroes of our faith are the people sitting next to you in this church, your brothers and sisters, not just those you read about in the Bible. When you see people being content, in circumstances where you might struggle to be content. 
Learn from them how they've done it. And then finally, verse 11. Paul says he's cultivated these habits himself. He knew what he was talking about. And he's not saying it because he's in need. For he says, I have learned to be content. Paul was not automatically content in all circumstances. He had to learn the skill. He developed the habit of trusting God. He learned from practicing thankfulness. From taking his anxieties to the Lord in prayer. From letting his mind dwell on the right things and from being willing to be taught and experiencing trust. He learned to be content. Changing from discontentedness to contentedness is a journey, it's a process, it takes time, it's gradual. The five habits I've just talked about take time to form. And they're a struggle. But they're a struggle that we do not undertake alone. Verse 13... I can do all this through him who gives me strength. We're not in this alone. This is not an exercise in self-help or self-improvement. It's a partnership with the living God who gives us his spirit to transform us and change us more to the image of his son. I want to sort of come to a conclusion now, but I just want to highlight two other points before I I do that. I want to talk about what contentment isn't. And contentment is not fatalism. Contentment doesn't just mean that you're indifferent to your circumstances. It doesn't mean you give up on trying to make things better. It's not throwing up your hands and saying, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That's not contentment. Nor is contentment complacency. Paul was never complacent. Let's go back to chapter 3 of this book and hear these words. Paul wrote, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's not complacency. That's hunger. A hunger to follow Christ more completely. It's a godly discontent that's born out of following the Lord's command that we heard in that earlier passage, to seek first his kingdom. It's living out the prayer of thy kingdom come. It's a discontent that comes out of the contentment, out of the utter security of knowing, as Paul writes, that Christ has taken hold of us. Now Sam, when he talked to me about about this uh, slot in our series. He said, talk about giving. And as I say, I've ducked the issue big time on that one, haven't I? But I don't believe I have, really. Because I don't believe that giving and contentment are separate and distinct issues. Let me tell you one final story, which I think shows the link between contentment and generosity and giving perfectly. And it's about a wise woman who was travelling in the mountains And she found a precious stone in a stream. And the next day she met another traveller who was hungry and the wise woman opened her bag to share her food. The hungry traveller saw the precious stone and asked the woman to give it to him. And she did so without hesitation. And the traveller left rejoicing in his good fortune. He knew the stone was worth enough to give him his security for a lifetime. 
But then a few days later, he came back to return the stone to the wise woman. I've been thinking, he said. I know how valuable the stone is, but I'm giving it back to you in the hope that you can give me something even more precious. Give me what you have within you that enabled you to give me something so precious. Give me what you have within you that enabled you to give me that stone. That's contentment. Put quite simply, learning to be content is, I believe, the essential prerequisite for being able to give open-handedly and generously. Whether we give of our money or our time or our skills or whatever other gifts and resources our Heavenly Father has so graciously bestowed on us. There's much more to be said about giving, but maybe that's another sermon for another time. When, like Paul, we have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. My suspicion is that, not my suspicion, my certainty is, my confidence is, that all of us sit here with elements of discontent in our lives. Things that we're not happy about. Things that we want to change. And some of those may be godly things. And some may not. So I'd like us just to close with a time of prayer. And first of all, I just want to give us a little bit of space, a little bit of time to lay before God those things that we worry about, that we're anxious about, those things maybe that we're striving for, which are not the things that he's asking us to strive for, but are things that are coming out of our own hearts and desires. Lay those before the Lord now and ask him to change you by the power of his spirit to enable you to seek first his kingdom. Make that your first desire. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances Heavenly Father, as we meditate on these words, we can so easily ignore the amazing truths that underpin them. So in the same spirit of worship that we were in before we started talking, we bless and adore you for being the Father who never fails or abandons his children, for being our Father who studies our needs and answers those needs with riches, not pittance. Father, you're so present and loving and kind and generous. Forgive us for our constant doubting of that and our habit of clinging on to worry. And Father, like Paul, we do want to learn to be more content. For the more content we are, the more present we'll be in our relationships with each other and with you not worrying or thinking about what we don't have. And the more generous we'll become, for we'll be quicker to acknowledge that everything we do have, we've received as a gift from you. And the more flexible and spontaneous we will be in serving you, not being defined or anchored by any 
of our creature comforts. Father, growth in contentment is growth in grace. So please open up our hearts to receive more of your grace. Hold us back from complacency and rescue us from believing that we have ever fully grasped the extent of your love and goodness. Release us from the stranglehold of unbelief, revealed in the fear that we have of even praying for contentment. And free us from from being not just satisfied in Christ, but by making us overwhelmed and in awe of every good thing you've given us in him. Grant us contentedness that can only come from that utter confidence that you have taken hold of us and that nothing can shake that. And grant us also a discontentedness with merely knowing about you and let us rather desire to know you more fully and to seek continually to deepen our relationships with you and to seek your kingdom so that not only may we receive and know the love that you have showered on us, but we may share it with those you've placed us among. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.